So I'm very excited to have um, Josh with me here today. Josh is a, a new person in my life, he, at my work. He joined our company uh, not too long ago, and he's someone immediately I gravitated towards. He's someone that speaks with his heart. Yeah. He speaks with a lot of care and, um, and a lot of wisdom embedded in the things that he communicates with the rest of our company. So uh, I'm really excited to have him here with us today. Thanks for having and, me, by the way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, and this is re- going to be really, really informal, right? Cool. My intention of this podcast really is just to inquire what it means to be a modern man, um, to be a man in modern times. And so I seek out people who I believe is really grounded and who know who they are and then just wanted to have a quick conversation. Cool. Right. Sounds great. So I guess the open opening question that we can start off with would be one of the pivotal moments in your life that formulated who you are as a man, as a person. Uh, interesting. You mean starting from kind of youth into into wherever, transitioning from from where, youth to a man. <laughs> wherever wherever you like to start. Um, I think probably a, an interesting tale to tell is when I was playing baseball in my senior year of high school and I was pretty good and I was thinking about potentially playing in college and um, talking to different colleges about where to play and thinking, although I, I always knew I wanted to go to UC Santa Barbara because it's where my grandparents lived. Um, oh, you went to UCSB? Yeah. I didn't know that. And so. But I was, so I was up in Santa Rosa and I was uh, playing shortstop on the, the varsity team at a Catholic school called Cardinal Newman. And we went to a tournament in Arizona. And on that tournament, we were left alone. A bunch of us kids were left alone in the hotel. Um, and we ended up breaking into the wet bar inside one of the hotel rooms. One of the kids picked the lock. And then uh, a bunch of us that were all in the room together drank either beer or, or alcohol. I think we like drained the, the vodka or whatever was clear and then tried to put water back into it or some, something silly that high school kids would do. And I actually kind of knew I was doing something wrong. You know, I mean, I knew it was certainly it was against the rules, but I sort of intrinsically knew like that trouble was a brewing, you know. But at the same time, I was certainly peer influenced and I wanted to be a part of this crew. So I think I had one sip of beer and that was like, you know, I'm, I'm here, this is fine, but I don't really want to like partake in this too much. Um, and this school figured out and they sat us down and at first they didn't know who had done it. So the coach basically brought, after this tournament was over, brought everybody into his school classroom that was on the baseball team put a pen or a pencil and paper down in front of us and said, I want to know everybody's involvement in the incident with alcohol at the hotel. And we're not leaving this room until everybody has written down how they participated. First, everybody was looking at one another. Like, what do we say? What do we do? Do we lie? Everybody that was in that room kind of knew, like I was in the room. What do I do? Presidents. Uh, what did they call it? Prisoner's Dilemma. Exactly. Yeah, he was doing a little exercise with us there. And what happened was uh, 
I wrote down the truth, actually. I said, I was in the group, I took a sip of beer, whatever. Well, the end result of that was I got kicked off the baseball team. In mm-hmm. fact, everybody that was in that room, except for the, ironically, the person that picked the lock, many people say it's because his parents were a key contributor to the school. Mm. He didn't get kicked off the team, but he didn't drink any alcohol, and, I, and they tried to position it as anyone who touched alcohol got kicked off the team. So it was kind of a big thing in the community. We were in the papers. I think we were even called Eight Men Out or something. Like it was referring back to the White Sox scandal. It was kind of like a, a wordplay from one of the reporters in the area, in the local paper. Mm. And that really soured me on baseball and mm. kind of ended my real thoughts of even wanting to be a pro baseball player, wanting to play baseball in college. It became this big... Thing. I got. I think we got suspended. We weren't allowed to go to the school dance. Um, the home. I mean, it was homecoming or the formal or spring formal or something. And the reason I bring that up as a story that shaped me is it was this distinct moment in my life of where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I ended up kind of not playing baseball. I didn't play summer league that in that in the summer, which I normally would have um, after high school ended. And I went down to Santa Barbara and I instead decided to go into math and computer science. And in truth, uh, probably it was just laziness. I probably was like, that's going to be a lot of work attempting to play baseball. And I had met some people on the baseball team when I went to orientation at Santa Barbara that had said, oh my God, the coach is terrible. It's horrible. We get 5 a.m. workouts like most of the year, all this kind of crazy stuff. And so... A number of things just kind of kept me away from that, I think. But uh, what shaped me was the process of going through that experience was I saw like kind of how my dad stood up for me and I saw how he taught me about, you know, sometimes when it appears you're in the wrong, you've actually done things right. And so he was actually really proud of how I handled not only my honesty in, in participating, because I knew by stating the truth that something was going to happen to me, but also that um, that I was honest with him in a parent-child relationship in exactly what happened, my participation, and that that honesty kind of held all the way through. Mm-hmm. And it, it really made him proud of me in that moment. And I think he taught me a lot, too, about... How to back your child so he mm-hmm. I heard from other other kids parents on the team later that in an all parents meeting when the school was trying to sort of lay down punishment it was actually my dad that got up and fought for all of the kids mm-hmm. um, and for me so mm-hmm. that was I think a really powerful changing moment for me learning about parent child and and how to deal with adversity and so a little quick pause yeah you learn about what he did years after or immediately after no no maybe uh weeks later okay. uh, because so pretty immediate. yeah pretty immediately so the those those meetings happened because they were trying to decide what to do to us there was a delayed period before they like gave us punishment mm-hmm. and in that time frame there was a number of like school administrator and mm-hmm. parent meetings where they were discussing this yeah, yeah, as a group Understood. and so then uh i heard from one of the other parents that I was close to that my dad, because they were kind of proud of him too, the parent, mm-hmm. uh, saying like, God, your dad really got up and got quite angry at the school actually for the way that they were handling the mm-hmm. whole thing. And he was upset because he felt like the school wasn't taking any accountability for having le- 
having left us mm. alone mm. with no sort of guide or mentor or, mm. or chaperone or anything. Like they just left us to our own devices. Mm. And he was like, what do you think 17 and 18 year old kids are going to do in another place, you know, like mm. with all of this alone time? So that was his frustration is he just felt that it was not handled correctly. Reminds me a lot of that movie with Al Pacino and uh, Chris, I can't remember his name. <clears throat> I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about he was the a, school one where, where the kids were put up in front of the school correct. and yeah, they yeah, were yeah, 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 they were yeah. grilled and that's he right, was that's uh, right. a smell scent of a rose something like yeah, that. That's right. yeah. that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, scent of a woman. Yes. Oh yeah. There you go. That's right. Scent of a woman. Great movie. Um, so very similar. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's there's a lot of correlation yeah, there. Yeah. So that was a really cool transformative moment for me. I think and sort of learning stuff how did I deal with it even even internally I kind of realized that I ran from that mm. and that I should probably not run from things like that in the future I should try to ran face from that What's I ran that? from uh, from the the poor experience I had in that situation of getting kicked off the team I allowed it to stop me from pursuing uh, something God. I kind of gave up on that mm. and I'm just because I I was annoyed and upset and frustrated mm. and so that was also a learning thing for me and in, in making a choice mm. that I then looked back on in life so then later on when I was 25 actually I talked to my parents about how I'd given up on the dream of baseball and so I actually pursued it again I joined a men's uh, semi-pro men's league and I actually went back to a professional baseball tryout and I didn't pass but at least I pushed myself back to that point um, so to sort of close the circle I guess you could say so but anyway so I learned something kind of about me and in that moment too it's not always a great thing to run away from from things you kind of can, can regret it later if you don't stop and think about it and I, I did it because I was angry basically mm -hmm. like you know the screw this attitude you know mm. forget this stuff it doesn't matter anyway mm. I'm just gonna ignore it even though actually it was something I loved mm. and was passionate about so so that both ways it learned I learned a lot kind of about the parent-child relationship and and how to be honest in that moment and also you know I learned something about myself and running away from something so and is your father still alive no like he passed away earlier this year actually uh, in this April year. yeah oh, shit. yeah just recently so um, so anyway, it's, it's kind of good to remember that moment with him. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's the, the first transformative, really truly uh, delineating experience between feeling like uh, you know a teenager versus kind of transitioning to feeling more like uh, a man or mm. becoming a modern man, I guess. Mm. Um, that was That's a moment that sort of sticks out in my mind. Mm. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of things there. so. So in many ways, I, I think, what a blessing. Like you learn so early, because most, I guess, the hero's journey along the way, right? <clears throat> and by hero, I don't mean like glorifying hero, but just, you know, a person's journey. Yeah. Typically in the teenage years, you rebel against the authority figures like your parents. Totally. But in that moment, you get it so early that you really saw your father as a man. You also saw yourself as a person of integrity. Yeah. Um, what a gift. Yeah, but but one thing I want to drill into is um, how did you like get so what's the word I'm looking for rational about like taking the wisdom the lessons of you know from 
an unpleasant event happen yeah. in your life because that doesn't come easy because yeah. most people when they come across adversity it's like woe is me right yeah. <laughs> I'm the victim of these circumstances but it takes a particular person to try to like get the lessons out of things I think the way that I would describe the reasons that I was able to do that is because of the way I was raised so from a very very young age my parents uh, taught me to think about moments in different kinds of ways what I mean by that is if I would get in trouble let's say I got in trouble at school when I was I remember one time I got in trouble at school in first grade I swore at a teacher mm. and I got in trouble and my parents would uh, and I had actually a number of getting in trouble at school events in my early years um, my parents in every time that I ever did anything they would sit me down and they would not just say you're in trouble you're grounded you're this you're that it was why did you do that what led you to that decision-making process what is it about your current state that made you want to do that? Can you articulate that? Mm. And, and then my parents would always say, my parents were always talking about, can you understand your weaknesses? Can you articulate your weaknesses? And what can you do to try and work on them? Mm. You know, and they, they, to the point that my dad passed away earlier and my mom would still say this today is, are you constantly analyzing? Are you constantly working on things to become better in a number of ways, like more uh, emotionally aware or emotionally intelligent, yeah. more uh, more caring or empathetic? Uh, you know, like, and so that really started from a young age. I remember um, one time they, I was put into the bathroom, and I was like, they they literally said. You know, like kind of like I think what like some parents out. might do, the timeout corner or whatever. <laughs> they used to use the bathroom, and um, little did they know, actually, it was kind of fun to play around in the bathroom because there's so many things you can mess around with. But they thought it was like this this bad place to be, and so I would be like, okay, you're gonna stay in the bathroom until you can come out and tell us like why you did what you did. We can have a, a logical conversation, and you know, initially you sort of lash out, you know scream, cry, whatever, pound the door, you know, whatever young kids do. And then they would wait, just let me kind of like burn out in there. Uh, and then once they felt I was calm, then they would, okay, let's talk about this. So I think that's how that all of that mm. was established. And so from that early point in my life till today, you know, if something goes wrong or if I have an issue or, um, I get into a problem or an argument or whatever else, usually later on I have the capacity to go analyze that mm. and think what led to that, why am I doing that, how can I maybe be better for the future. Mm. Um, certainly doesn't mean I all of a sudden make perfect decisions coming out of that, but at least the analytical side of that gives me the ability to be, to have some insight mm. and to think from a different perspective, which is really what they were telling me to do. Sometimes they would say things to me like, how do you think we feel about this scenario? What would you do if you were us? What kinds of choices would you make and why? And so there was a lot of this logical, rational working through things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, I probably would have nonsensical answers to try to be funny, you know. If I were you, I would give me tons of candy and let me watch as much movies as I want or mm -hmm. something silly. And they would, 
you know, roll their eyes or something like that. But uh, so I think that's really where it came from is, is the questioning and the perspective oriented stuff. Now, did they learn that somewhere or was it just intuitive? That's how they were raised by their parents or? Um, I think some of it was how they were raised and some of it was learned. So they were, <coughs> excuse me, they were uh, at stages in their life before I was born. That was, it was, you know, during the 70s where they were experimenting with different kinds of idealisms and they were learning from mentors and guides okay. um, and even uh, were a part of basically, I guess you could call it a, a community or a commune. Um, so they were part of it. Yeah. So okay, so they wow, had awesome. so That's they great. had they had some sort of other training that they were getting and some other teaching that was telling them to think about things in different ways. So I think it's probably a combo of the way they were raised and then also this experience that they had. In fact, that's how they met each other, oh, is through that. Um, so I'm actually curious. <clears throat> so since you were the product of you know very intentional parenting, yeah, right? right? And from the sound of it, I mean, if I don't have any kids, but if I have kids, like oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Did you take the tools they sort of transfer, instill in you to raise your... Now you have a three, two kids. Two kids, right? Yeah, six-year-old and three-year-old, six both boys. Okay, still really young. Yep. Boys, right? So great. So now that you're a parent, do you take it's, the same route? It's a great question. I think I absolutely do, but the thing that you also realize is that I don't believe there is any singular book, training method, or set of tools that you can apply to every single child you have. They are so different. You have to, in my mind, you have to adapt to them based on the unique styles of personality that they have. So my older one, for example, I do kind of talk to that way. He's very analytical, and but he also has this explosion uh, where in the moment of explosion, and maybe he gets this from me, maybe my parents would say I'm like this, he is not. He has no capacity to understand logic. Mm. It's literally, I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm I'm gonna lash out, or I'm gonna be crying, or I'm gonna be angry, or whatever. And then in that moment, and some moments afterwards, there's no no rational like, did you understand what I was saying, or can you see it from this perspective? It's just no. Like I'm angry at you. I'm upset in this moment. There's nothing that can get. And he has, he's incredibly, incredibly stubborn in that way. And so I just have to wait. Mm. And then he, he hits some line. It's very strange, actually. It's almost like two personalities. He hits some line, and then he's done. And it's like a snap, and he's a different person. Okay, I can talk about this now. Mm. And then I will talk to him. So why did you get so angry? And sometimes he can articulate that. Sometimes he can't very well. Sometimes the things that he says that I did or that somebody else did that caused him to get to that moment don't make sense. You know? Mm. Uh, but for the most part, he's pretty rational and logical when he's calm. And so I can talk through those things and then I can, and then I can ask him questions. Uh, the younger one, he, he, he listens, but it's not, he's not old enough yet work to the point where I think I could sit him down and be like, do you know why you did what you did? You know, the <laughs> right, three-year-old, that, that, that capacity is not there yet. Uh, so, but certainly on the older one, I think both, uh, Liz and I are very much about, What's your perspective? Why did you do this? What can we do you know, in the future to help you make better decisions? Um, so I guess some of that may have come from, from my own experience with my parents, certainly. 
I'm definitely, I definitely have that in me. And so I speak that way. And so I think just with my natural parenting, that probably comes out. I wouldn't say it's intentional. Mm. I don't have a plan in my mind that I'm like parenting this way. Mm. I literally talk to him the same way I might talk to somebody I work with, which is just try to be logical, mm. try to be empathetic, mm. try to think about it. Even from his, I try to think about it from his perspective. Mm. Why would he do what he would do? And I try to share that with him. So I try to have these logical conversations to get to some level of understanding. And probably a lot of that came from this. But I don't know that I intentionally think of that. I think it's just natural in me. Mm. And I think my, uh, my wife more has a, she's much more, um, how, how do I say this? She, she coddles a little bit more. She, she protects, she's, she's, but, she can, but she also is, can get much angrier, much faster at him doing something that she doesn't agree with. I guess you call it the Latin blood or whatever. Mm. Uh, the, so, so we have different kind of parenting styles. I'm far more like I'm going to talk calmly and try to, you know, work through it. Um, and she's going to be sort of more get frustrated and upset and then sit him down. But she, but both of us will talk. And I think it's having the conversation. It's not, we, we completely agree that punishment based parent parenting where it's like, you do something wrong, you get punished. You know, it almost reminds me of the current legal system that we live in in the U.S. where it's like, it's fear-based. I call mm -hmm. that fear-based parenting. If you do this, this will happen to you. You know, if you speed, you'll get a ticket. If you steal, you rather than here are the reasons why those kinds of laws exist or here's the reasons why you shouldn't do that. Here's why you shouldn't eat a whole, you know, carton of ice cream on your own. Here's why you shouldn't hit your brother. Right? Like, how does it feel when he hits you? You know, what, why do you do that? Why can't you, you know? But it's, we both have conversations with them and try to create a level of interactivity that, that builds greater consciousness and awareness mm. and empathy. So, and I think that's, it's just natural. Not, neither of us have never necessarily read a book or went to a parenting seminar oh, really? or anything. We, well, well, I think when we had our first child, we ordered 50 books. Mm. And some of them we read parts of, and some of them we read, you know, like the things that our friends had told us were worth, worth reading. Certainly we read blogs, articles, things. So it's not like there's no knowledge, but I haven't applied anything that I necessarily read in any of those books into some program. Mm. I'm parenting the best way that I know how. I've talked to friends. I, you know, there's a whole bunch of things where you absorb, you know, you, you also can witness other people parenting and you can say, oh, I really like that or, oh, I really don't like that. And you can pull pieces of those experiences into the things that you do. But I think some of it is just your own interactive relationship with your kids mm. and it's organic to some, to some extent. Mm. But, I, but I do think, just last before the next question, I do think some of that base and foundation that creates the ability to do that without needing a lot of structure comes from the way you were raised. And my wife also, I think, has a really great role models. Uh, her parents, actually, they live with us uh, right now. And they're just wonderful, caring, passionate, protective people. But also they teach lessons. They're very wise. They're very patient. Um, her dad is a little bit more like she is. Like They kind of have a hot flame. Mm. And her mom and I are very similar. Rick, we kind of more calmly talk through, rationally mm. talk through things. And mm. 
so it, the, the parallels are really interesting. Um, and then having them around also, it helps with parenting as well. You know, they'll see things and then they'll say, you know, off to the side or something, you know, like, you might want to think about this or you might want to think about that, especially to her because they only speak Portuguese. But yeah. so anyway. I mean, there's a lot of different direction that can go. <clears throat> Personally, I'm curious about the parenting aspect of it. Sure. I'm not a parent yet. But, but, but if I continue to explore, it still be theoretical, right? So <laughs> I guess I'll do a part two, part three. There you go. When situations like that happen. Yeah. But I wanted to actually ask you, because I wanted to focus on you as an individual, as a sure. man, and how these different events change you as a man. <clears throat> Um, we skip ahead quite a bit from 16 years old to where you are. Yeah, right? sure. Number of years, and a lot of things happen. Yeah. But there's some significant things. So perhaps hmm, I'm trying to think. So there's a lot of things happen. So you got married. Yeah. And you had a kid or two kids. Yeah. A kid first and then second, and then your dad died recently. Yeah. I mean. One may say these are significant events that sure. changes, you know, one's outlook in life. Yeah. Per se, right? Can you kind of look back on these significant events? Sure. And see how it changed you as a man, as a person. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll start with getting married because I think that's a really significant event in somebody's life. And for me, I really did not want to get married ever. Actually, before I met my wife. Uh, I never thought I would. I was kind of like, I felt like, I, although George Clooney now has gotten married, I guess once or twice, but there was a period of time where he was known as like the, the long running bachelor. And I kind of saw myself that way of like, not being tied down to anything, being free. I used to travel a lot, go visit family. Uh, my dad's cousin and her husband lived in Europe and I'd go to France and visit them. Or uh, I actually went to Brazil before I ever met my wife several times because one of my roommates was dating a Brazilian girl. They're now married. but So we went to go visit her and her friends in Brazil a couple times. I went down there for a wedding. Um, so I, I, liked, I felt like all of the married couples that I saw and knew, they seemed to be in strained relationships that... Mm although they may be extremely loving, were, were tiring and they didn't do fun things and mm. it was all about the kids and, and the chains. And, and the truth is, now that I am a parent, I see that they were sharing their frustrations, but they weren't sharing the joys. Mm. So all I was hearing from the outside was, oh my God, it's tiring, we're taking kids to the doctor, we got to take them to school. Everything's wrapped around school years. We can only go on vacations at certain times, like all of these constraints. So as a younger man, I was not interested in being constrained. And what happened is I met uh, my wife and we, she was the same. She was not interested in being constrained. And so when we started dating, she was, uh, she had a time frame. She was studying English here in LA actually. She was living in Culver City and, and studying in Santa Monica. And she was going to go back to Brazil. I guess it was from the time I met her, it was about three months. So we were like, awesome. We've got three months to hang out, have a great time. It's totally casual, no pressure. And I think that was the, the perfect thing that both of us needed to open our minds to the relationship because there was nothing 
that we layered on top of it. We just had a ton of fun together. That's all. Like we would travel. We traveled up and down the coast. We went and visited my brother for his birthday, and we went up in San Francisco. I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. She was down here in LA, and we went to San Diego. We went um, anyway. Most of it was fairly local, but uh, but we we partied a lot together. We um, just had a great sort of couple of months and we were just hanging out more and more and more and then we kind of started realizing like we don't want this to stop and we really like spending time together and which what are we going to do about this and it kept getting better and better and better and and uh finally we were we were talking and we were like i think we were driving at the time because we used to have great conversations when we would drive and we were talking and we just said you know we should just let's just get married that way you can stay in the country and uh oh no yeah who said that i think i did you did yeah which is i think she said well i have to go back soon and i think i said maybe half jokingly we could just get married and then you don't have to leave and we kind of looked at each other like hmm but it wasn't like an immediate that's just totally ludicrous out of this world don't even ever bring that up again there was more of a hmm maybe that could work and the funny thing is like that didn't scare me Mm. and it didn't scare her Mm. instead we were like okay how do we make this work and the irony of that is that my brother was getting married in a much bigger that he and his wife to be had uh, actually down here in Orange County the one that I'm living close to they had planned a big wedding and had been, it had been in the works for some time and we didn't want to rain on anybody's parade. So we didn't tell anybody. So we actually ended up eloping. We had like one witness uh, who was one of my roommates went to the Santa Barbara courthouse and we got married. We told nobody for months, months and months. And we just went with it. It was kind of, and we're both spontaneous people and we just rolled with it. So, Anyway, so that was one event that kind of shaped and transformed me because by transformative, I mean I went from being somebody who wanted no constraints to all of a sudden being in a constraint, right? Like, I'm, I have to help this person get their green card. I have to go through the process of working on her citizenship. There's tons of documents and processes you have to go through. Yeah. And so uh, you end up you know, dealing with a lot of constraints, a lot of things that, you know, like paperwork, the people that you have to meet with, stuff like that. So, and, and also you, when you agree to get married, you stop dating other people, of course. That's another constraint, right? So I went from no constraints to, to, to changing. Mm-hmm. And so that was a significant moment. Then fast forward to, uh, I guess it was four years later when we had our first child and we just, got to the point where we were like, we're open to it. It was not planned. We didn't say we're ready to have a child now. We just got to this point where we're like, if that happened, that'd be cool. And so we ended up, we were living in Texas at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had our first child in Texas and that was extremely transformative because. So actually, yeah, before we get to the child sure. part, actually. Yeah. So I'm newly married. Yeah. Right. And. I love my wife. She's amazing, beautiful, all that. But when you have someone who is a powerful feminine figure, right, who's, you know, all the 
beautiful things that come with a powerful feminine. Yeah. And I am a powerful masculine. Yeah. There's a lot of polarity that happens, right? So I don't want to skip over like some of yeah. the the iteration that, that needed to happen, right? To to like to to find that the the synchronicity of the the dance between the masculine and the feminine. So how did you, I guess, come closer together? One plus one equals to three, kind of a situation, right? Or I'll was be, it just I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be honest. Yeah. It it really has taken until about two years ago, I would mm -hmm. say. For us to really find synchronicity, okay. so eight so the first that? eight years of our marriage were were quite rocky, actually. Right. And the reason I'll say that is because she is so strong-minded, and so am I, that for us to align on on everything is quite difficult and challenging. And we would find that when we would argue or whatever, some of it was pride, some of it was ego. We both always wanted to be right until a couple of years ago where we realized that that got us nowhere. Um, I think it was the second child uh, and also her parents that really helped us uh, work through that. So to wind back, uh, I put a lot of pressure on her to integrate into this society, mm. to get a job, to, to help provide financially. And she, uh, first of all, in the beginning hated that pressure and, and held that against my family, against myself, and was constantly feeling judged and you know, felt this like every time she would come hang out with my friends in some cultural setting, she was the first, well, what are you doing? Where, what's your job? Where are you? And she had been a professor and had, uh, had her mom as, as a university professor. She had, sorry, she wasn't a professor, she was a teacher. Uh, of Portuguese and, and language and her mom similarly was both a uh, I believe a high school teacher and then also a university professor and so she had a lot of backing in in studies and deep studies and knowledge and and so to come here and to have that not be an option because she would have had to go through all of the schooling again and to basically have like you can be a nanny or you can you know do menial jobs that that were in some ways in her mind beneath her not because she judges people, but because she feels like I have access to more given my education and things like that. So that was really hard for her in the beginning because I was trying to push on her to go find something, but the things that she went out looking for were not the things that she wanted, was gonna be passionate about doing. So she was feeling painted into a corner. Mm -hmm. And then my family or my friends would, would put pressure on that, like, what are you doing? How, what are you doing to provide? What are you doing to help Josh out? What are you, you know, like, if you don't have kids, you should be working, right? Like all of these little things that come. Not from you, but from them. Even from me too. Oh, from I'll you. Be, I'll be so, honest. So from, okay. I had that of like, I don't want to be the sole financial bearer of our yes. future. I want you to help provide. And I put a lot of pressure on her too. Mm. Um, and unfairly so, because I didn't, what I should have done is actually back off and say, find yourself here in this culture that is totally different mm. where you don't have an established family or friend circle or and and even where the culture is so different to you you're not used to the way people interact here mm -hmm. right like when she would go to a social party uh, in brazil it was about who are you mm -hmm. you know what what, are, what interests you what are you doing out not what is your job mm. not how much do you make not your status 
-hmm. not who do you know or what do you drive or what can you do for me, literally who are you? And that she that resonates with her mm. significantly. So when she, you know, would uh, and and I I think some of it was just misjudgment on both sides too. I think uh, sometimes people just want to start conversations, and that's how they know how to do it here. Mm -hmm. They're so used to it. How's your job? What are you up to? Right. And so she may have been misinterpreting things that she thought were pressure based questions that were Perceived just casual. Pressure. Yeah. And so anyway, that so that led to. A lot of stuff, and that actually why we moved to Texas is because one of my uh, my basically my best friend that I played baseball with and in high school and was my roommate in college, he offered her a job at uh, at a shipping company, and so and I could work remotely, so that's why we actually ended up moving to Texas, and <clears throat> so she could so she started this was before we had our first kid, mm. and so then she started working. And she was working super hard, and but she hated the job, mm. hated it. It was mm. in like warehousing and doing mm. books and things like that. And she was just like, this is not my, you know, I'm doing this basically because I'm trying, she's trying to kind of go outside her, her box and, mm. and, and try to support me too. Mm. And, but some of it she's doing out of a sense of pressure mm. and my expectation. And so mm. those are some of the things that we worked through early on. Mm. And you get into roles and you get into, you know, if I'm the breadwinner, I should be the decision maker too. And that does not float in her world, right? Mm -hmm. She is, we are very much equal partners. Mm. And of course now she's an entrepreneur. She started her own business, uh, Be Brazil, which is, you know, importing women's athletic apparel from Brazil and selling it here via a number of outlets. Um, and that now she's, she's found her connection and her passion and she's exploded into it, you know, um, and probably will take Southern California by storm as well very soon. Um, and, and so now she has a sense of identity, purpose, her own thing. She doesn't need to rely on me to, to be sort of the sole breadwinner or the sole point of focus in our family. She's, she has her, her own independent identity you know, outside of me. Mm -hmm. And that's been fantastic for her as well. And so that was also started a couple of years ago. So probably all of these things, having the second child, having her parents live with us and her starting that company mm -hmm. have all really helped our relationship blossom. Um, and so the last two years really have been fantastic um, as we've grown, as I've grown through this. But uh, let me wind back to the first chat when we had our yes, first please. child. Thank you. Uh, as another transformative experience. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, she was working, I was working remotely and we kind of had a reversal of, I was kind of in, in a very comfortable, relaxed environment. I was working from Texas, but for a California company. So they didn't start till 10 o'clock, which meant 12 o'clock noon was basically when I started my job. So I could stay up extremely late at night, sleep in. She had to get up at 5 a.m. to go to her job. So we had this, now, now she was like working at as crazy hours and this job she didn't like. I was working from home in my slippers, you know, like, um, and we kind of had this reversal of, of what I had been feeling about her before and what she was feeling. So we, we've gone through these little dynamic changes, mm -hmm. but actually at the same time as when we opened our mind to having our first child. And so, you know, she got pregnant and we had our first kid and that was transformative in the sense of you go from being a couple mm -hmm. where everything is about each of your needs working together. We would travel to Brazil for New Year's and to visit her family and we would go 
to Las Vegas or we would go to other parts of the United States uh, and all, and had sort of that freedom and going back to that constrained lifestyle, right? And then as soon as, soon as we've had our first child, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And for the husband, it's, I think, in some ways more difficult because uh, not, not in terms of like having to go through pregnancy and childbirth, that physically that is far more difficult for a woman for obvious reasons. What I mean is, is once the child is born, the attention of the mother shifts drastically to the child mm-hmm. and away from the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so you start to feel like caretakers of a child and much less uh, a, an intimate couple, you know, mm. that's working on your relationship all the time and stuff. You become a mom and a dad. Mm. So that's a very transformative moment in a couple's life. Um, and I would transformative in a positive way or both, not so positive. Both. It's very difficult uh, at first, but it's the most amazing experience you can ever imagine. You become greater than yourself. Mm. You become part of something that you see as bigger, which is raising another person in this world, trying to help make them successful, trying to help, and you, you become connected to that. You are literally changed from the moment your child, your first child is born, and even your second child, whatever, but that first one, you, you're a different human being. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you hold this other being for the first time, and you're just, it's magical. Mm-hmm. It's. Like you can't even describe in, in eloquent words what it does to you internally. Mm. You just have this sense of connection to this other being, this desire to be a better version of yourself mm. instantly mm. because you're like, I want this person to have the best life. I want them to have a great um, guide and mentor to follow, a good example. I want them to have financial support and security. I want them to have access to the best things toys, experiences, schools, everything else, your desire shifts, you know, like before it might be, I'm not paying that much attention to my financial well-being or whatever, I might, we, let's go on this Hawaii trip, you know, like and spend tons of money on it because we're having fun. To after that, you're like, oh, what about college and what about um, being financially aware for the child and setting them up for success and things. So it is very transformative and then, and it also, uh, it changes sort of the way you perceive the world. Mm. You become more of a protector. Mm. So it's you start seeing things that are kind of more negative in some ways. Like, mm. oh, before I didn't really notice smog as much. But now that I have this young child that's breathing this all the time, I notice it. Like mm. those kinds of things. You become more aware of people who are angry in spaces and moments that are around you. People that are more negative like... That, that's impacting my, my child. You know, before I'm like, ah, I don't, whatever, it's fine, I can deal with it. Mm. Now, if you have a child and you have a family unit, you, you become more of like, you kind of want to protect that bubbled family unit more. You start thinking more along those. And then society pushes you on that path too. It's like car seats and, and minivans and safety ratings and, you know, what kinds of bottles are you buying and what kinds of... Uh, baby carriers and and you start thinking about you know like uh, proper breathing breathable blankets so your child doesn't suffocate and there's all these things that you go through mentally and that and that society helps you along that mental path where you start think, saying I'm a protector mm-hmm. right and you start thinking more in safety terms and stuff like that so so I have a follow-up question then. sure <clears throat> 
um, first of all, thanks for sharing that and um, looking forward to it for myself in the near future. Yeah. But how does it, this, this, this desire that you talked about, desire to protect, change your behavior tactically, personally? Yeah. From the self-mastery perspective, from the, because you talked about awareness, it's one thing to be aware, it's yeah. another to actually change your behavior in some shape or form, right? How you spend your time, how you spend your dollars, how you spend your effort. I don't know that everybody does this, but I became acutely more aware of things like how fast I was driving, mm. right? Because I don't want to not be there for my child. So putting myself into a more dangerous moment, like, you know, if I'm, I'm partying with friends or whatever, like, what am I doing? You know, like uh, before I would say, you know, like getting in a car after having a couple of drinks, I'd be like, ah, I'm fine. It's not a big deal. Whereas once you have a child, you kind of, conceptually think about that much much more deeply mm. um, and it's not to say you shouldn't before certainly you should but the mentality shifts and changes mm. you know like you start to think about places you're going that may or may not be more or less dangerous um, putting your you know I started to do things like yoga to exercise more to, mm. to think about my health and what I was eating more drinking less those kinds of things that a child bringing a child certainly had that tactical impact on me and the way that I was thinking about all of the things that I was doing on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So that it was that was very real. Um, and you know, like over time, it may become lessened. It's acute right when your child is born. You really start, and then you kind of become a little bit more numb, and you sort of fall back mm-hmm. to some level of, of what you were doing uh, before. But for at least for a, a period of time, you become incredibly aware of all these things, and you try to, you know, you try to think about, okay, I'm not going to eat those, you know, a donut or whatever else you might be doing that that you recognize as being unhealthy. Mm. You try to do that a little bit better, um, and then just also, you realize that you have to care for a small individual, so you physically have to change sometimes your behavior. You know, like. This may be easier for women than men, potentially, but like you have to carry a small infant around, right? And that may be something you've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, I had because my mom is a neonatal nurse, and mm-hmm. and I had I was also the oldest of four kids, so I had, and I was eleven and a half years older than my sister, so I was old enough to understand when she was a baby that she was a baby, and I could carry her and and whatever, and so I've had some exposure to, to small children and things like that before I actually had my first. Mm-hmm. But some people may not. And so that first moment of carrying a child and carrying, you know, and burping them and, and moving them around and making sure that they're okay and swaddling them and things like that. Um, those, are, those are physical changes to your behavior that may be very hard for some people. Oh, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and new right? skills, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> yeah. And you, um, depending on who you are, you either pick it up, you know, mm. fairly quickly or maybe it's a challenge. Some, some things are still a challenge. Um, you know, uh, you have to be mentally aware for a very simple example is how hot the milk is if you're heating milk up. Mm. Like uh, oftentimes something that, that dads like to do is to heat up the breast milk to, to be the one who feeds the baby out of a bottle, right? So that it's not just always on the mother. And, but you have to remember, you can't make it too hot. 
Otherwise, you're literally going to burn your child while they're, they're drinking the milk. Mm. So you have to pay attention to that and you have to test it. Mm. And so if you, if you don't think about that and you're in a rush or you're not paying attention or whatever, you can, you know, you can have a reaction. And even if you do it, the worst thing that happens is the baby starts crying a little bit and you're like, mm. oh, I did something wrong. Mm. But it's little things like that where you have to become more attentive to moments of, of safety and awareness mm. and mm. care and protection that are the physical things that you actually have to do in terms of changing your behavior. Mm. And I wouldn't say that I'm always the most acutely detailed, aware person of every little thing that I'm doing. Mm. Um, I'm a more, I'd say a bigger picture kind of person where mm. sometimes the little, the little minutia of things, I might forget to do that, right? Mm. Um, so I guess those are the kind of tactical changes that help transform you a little bit as you go through having a child and that's one of them. Cool. Um, and then the the next child, I guess I, I could I'll jump to the next child and then my dad. So when you have the second child, you've gone through everything already. So you're far less worried about everything that's happening. You're if the if the child gets sick, you don't panic. When you have your first child, you panic. Oh my God! Like they're not breathing well, or they're congested, or they're they, you know they have to we have to take them. To, they have a fever. We've got to go to the doctor immediately, you know, and then you realize like 90% of the time you go to the doctor, they're like, yeah, it's a virus that's going around. They'll be fine in a couple of days. Just make sure they get fluids. That's basically what you hear most of the time when you go to the doctor. So Thank when you. Yeah. <laughs> so when you have your second, then you're like, unless it's a really crazy high fever, you're like, yep, they'll be fine. You know, like unless you start seeing things that are not consistent with what you've already experienced before when your kids get sick. Um, you know, and sometimes there, there are things that are much worse, maybe an ear infection or, uh, or something like a pneumonia or something like that, where it's, you know, like you really have to take action quickly or bad things can happen. You learn the differences between those moments, but you become far less sensitive than you are with your first child. Mm. First child, everything is, is this new thing. You know, like you buy, you buy way too many things in the beginning because you're like, I, we need to experiment, we need to test, we need, and there's like a million gajillion products on the market, you know, mm. that people will tell you are the greatest things since sliced bread, like, um, you know, what are they, like all of the bl different kinds of blankets you can buy, the padding for your cribs, different kinds of cribs, different kinds of uh, car seats and, and strollers and uh, baby carriers and swaddling blankets and all these different things, bottle warmers, different kinds of bottles, like, <laughs> and you, you buy a bunch of that stuff in the beginning because you, you don't know what to buy and what you really need and what you don't need. And so you go through a lot of that. With the second one, you're like, yeah, we got this. You know, we pretty much know how this whole deal works. Um, so they're not, I wouldn't say the second child is nearly as transformative in a sense. You kind of have practiced before and so you're, but, they, but it still is very different to have two as opposed to one. Mm. And you have to, you have to be aware that as those children grow, and if you have even more, that dynamics come into play. Mm. My, my wife, for instance, is an only child. I'm the oldest of four. We are very different people as a result of that. Mm. I'm used to um, sharing a lot more. I'm used to uh, communicating and planning and doing things in a more, much crazier way. Mm. She's far more used to like direct attention and all the planning with her family is around her mm. and her needs and when, you know, when she'll be arriving, when she'll be home, whatever. When you've got four or six, you know, two parents and four kids, it's chaos. 
you know, and you have to be okay with it. Okay. Plans are changing, somebody's arriving later, somebody's arriving earlier, maybe somebody came a day earlier and you didn't know. Those things can agitate her, whereas they're nothing to me. I'm, yeah, who cares? <laughs> What's the big deal, right? And so uh, the reason I bring that up is to say when, when you have more than one, you have to be aware of the dynamics between multiple children. Like if you only give attention to one and not the other, the other is going to be totally aware of that, no matter how young they are, right? Mm. And the other thing is when the first one, when the second one comes along, the first one is no longer the only source of your attention or the only focal point of your attention. Now they have to share it. And that's really hard for the older one, mm. right? Like immediately there's this, wait, why is this thing so important? Why are they taking attention away? Why are you focusing so much? Why do they get stuff? If, and then as they get older, it's like, why did he get that and I didn't get this? You mm. know, like, and so you have to start buying everything. Almost every time you go get a present or whatever, you have to get two. Even, and this is a very Brazilian thing to do, but even if it's one's birthday, my wife will always buy a present for the other. No kidding. Always. Wow. So that when the presents and the everything happens, it's like, yes, it's your birthday. Yeah, here, happy birthday. Here's your cake. Here's your everything. And also, happy other person's birthday. <laughs> you know, like, here's this present for you so you don't feel left out. And actually, wow. that's one of the things that I never experienced growing up, which I think is a really cool cultural tradition that they have. How about um, no one gets birthday gifts? Or, or no one, that's fine too. <laughs> that's, that's great. If you just get love, that's fine. <laughs> that would work as well, you know. But I, I think the point really is that you try to, to show that love, care, and affection all the time to both. Like, wow. I'm thinking about you. I'm caring about you. You're not left out. You're not... And she's, even though she's an only child, she's really good at that. She's really good at making sure they're both kind of taken care of. But so that transforms you a little when you have the second one, because now you're like this larger nuclear family and you have to start thinking about, um, you know, double everything more. It's more financial burden, right? Like you've got to buy more food. You've got to buy, if you buy plane tickets, you've got to get two extra ones, you know, all of those mm. things come into play. So. There's a lot of dynamic inside of that. Um, and then last thing, is, uh, 15 minutes, um, is my dad passing. Mm. As, as far as being a transformative event, extremely transformative in the sense that it's uh, acute awareness to mortality, mm. to um, appreciating the moments of life a little bit more because you recognize how fleeting it is. Mm. And especially when you see somebody who goes from being kind of a rock and a very strong person to dealing with health issues and becoming weaker and weaker and then you know, having to caretake them or my mom really became a caretaker for the last year and a half because my dad was dealing with chemo and dealing with all these things. Um, and you see you know, my dad actually over the course of several years kind of became a different person to me really mm. and the sense that he lost a lot of his memory and he uh, was much harder to carry conversations it was much uh, he, he would become frustrated when he couldn't re remember things so he, he was more irritable um, so a lot of changes happened also because a result of my dad's health problems and so in witnessing that and going through and then um, you know of course dealing with his passing and it becomes this this event where you're like, okay, I'm a father now. I see how that is. It makes me even want to be healthier, actually, and care more about my health. And it makes, you know, to be there for my children for as long as I can and to have a really uh, great relationship with them. 
And also it, it helped me focus a little bit on you know, what, what is important and what is not in terms of relationship with parent-child. And then also just the, the bare fact of, you know, death, what is death? How, how close are we all to it? You know, like, and how do we think and feel about it? And having conversations with people about it. You know, how do I talk to my mom about mm-hmm. what's happened? How do, you know, like my mom kind of went immediately into which I would totally expect for somebody that has been married for more than 50 years, immediately went into this, like, there's this chasm in her life now, right? Mm. So she's, there's a lot of nostalgia, remembering things, thinking about events, wishing she had done certain things, you know, like talking about that in a certain number of ways. And I, that, that kind of helps me go, you know what, it's really important to, to really think about the, the way you want to shape your life and your moments. Mm. Because if you think about it from the lens of um, what life will be like later, mm. you know, all, you could say all the way to your deathbed if you want. If you, in looking back in reverse, it's a it's a valuable thing to say. How would I like my life to be shaped from this day to some potential you know date, hopefully in the far future? I think um, somebody interviewed Jeff Bezos from Amazon, and they were saying, you know, like. How do you explain your amazing decision making to turn Amazon into this, um, you know, one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable in terms of market cap, I think they might be the most right now, company in the world. And he was like, you know, a lot of people are making decisions based on, you know, a quarter or close revenue or a specific customer or whatever. And he's like, I always do this. I ask myself at 85, how would you like to look back on all of these decisions and what would you do in this moment thinking from that lens? Mm. And he's like, so I'm always thinking about if I'm challenging myself as an older person about my decisions in the present, mm. I have that lens of seeing what, how the future changed and shaped things. So he's like, I'm always thinking about stuff that way. Mm. How would I have behaved in looking backwards? Mm. And he said that helps him make decisions that are not grounded in immediacy immediate need Mm. but bigger picture right so along the same lines I think that's kind of how I feel that my dad's passing has transformed me is it's a bigger picture it's how do I make my current life better how do I make better decisions how do I have better relationships Mm. both with my wife my family my kids as a brother as a son as a a spouse Um, and of course you're not going to be perfect because it's impossible to be perfect, but you can certainly strive for it. Um, and I guess the way that I would picture this from my own lens in the future is what does success look like for me? And success for me looks like I did an amazing job raising my kids, set them up for amazing success, gave them the choices. I don't actually care about success for them other than that they are happy, feel supported, have the capacity to make their own choices and lead lives, but that I've given them enough to have the opportunities to do so in a really great way. Discretionary options. There you go. And then same thing, how have I supported my wife, grown as a modern man, grown uh, as a person in, you know, how I see gender relationships and roles and, um, and how have I helped set us up for success 
so that she looks back and goes, we did everything we could together too. Mm. And that's what I'm, that's kind of my, my dad's passing really, it opened my eyes to a lot of things um, in thinking about my own behaviors and mm. thinking about my relationships mm. with both family and friends. And, and also I, the biggest one I think is, is probably parent-child because I became kind of over the last 10 years, pretty distant from my dad. I didn't really, mm. you know, and you might say, well, that coincides with how long you've been married. And the truth is when you get married, your life changes. And when you have kids, your life changes. You're the nucleus of your family. It's no longer you and your parents. It's now that person and your children. And then it grows out from there. Of course, you still have family and relationships and stuff, but the nucleus changes, you know, before you ever get married, it's, me and my siblings and my parents, that's the nucleus. And then once you change, you know, it changes. So I think I drifted away from him and also I think his health issues contributed to that. So mm. I wasn't having as deep of conversations. I wasn't, we would both be probably getting kind of frustrated actually talking to each other or it would be very fast. Like, mm. how's it going? Good, good, everything's great. Yeah, we're good, you know, kids good, blah, 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 you know. Um, so he became distant to me and I probably in his mind became distant to him and mm. so I think in his passing, uh, that's something I became aware of and talked to my mom about too. In mm. um, looking back and saying, you know, what could I have done differently there maybe to make that better? And of course, I, I don't have the opportunity to fix that, but I do have the opportunity with my children mm. to set us up maybe for greater success, that kind mm. of thing. So, appreciate that's it. about that. I know you only have limited number of times. So yep. How many minutes? Nine. Nine <laughs> minutes, perfect. <clears throat> so let's do some rapid questions. Sure. <clears throat> um, tactically speaking, right? Because my intention of this podcast is that people not only learn from the, your narrative, right? The journey that you've taken, yeah. the wisdom that you share, kind of drop the gems that you drop along the way, yeah. but also tactically. What disciplines do you use to govern your day-to-day such that you're as grounded as you can be? Um, I'll try to be quick with my answers. Yeah. Empathy is one of the hugest disciplines that anybody could ever learn, which is empathy and perspective, which is when faced with any situation, thinking about the person that you're talking to or the people you're dealing with through their lens. If you can think and understand them, you can help make decisions that are better for the, the collective group the two of you, whatever else, because you're not enforcing your own specific bias on them. You're attempting to think what's better for, for either all of you or the group or whatever. So it's, it's empathy to other people and perspective, trying to think through the perspective of other people in decision-making. That's one. Another tactical thing would be um, l- listen to your inner voice. So there's a lot of moments that you'll experience in the work world where you'll have a little uh, a hesitation, a fear, a worry. You'll notice and recognize things that feel out of place to you. They feel wrong. It could be somebody's behavior, a communication style, an email thread, a, an interaction, uh, something you notice technologically, whatever. Don't let that voice get lost. Mm. Note it, write it down. Keep track of it, talk to people about it, bring it up in one-on-ones, bring it up in, in group sessions or with management or whoever else. Don't let those, because what those little voice moments are typically telling you, it's, it's like the sensors on a car. 
Mm. It's telling you, you know, there's something, there's a little bit less air in the tire. Mm. There's, you should probably brake now because I'm sensing that something is wrong, right? Like if you don't pay attention to that sensory data, you will run into deeper issues later because you're not taking quick corrective action, right? Like mm. that car tire is low and you pull in a gas station and fill it up quickly, you're probably not going to have a problem. But if you let that thing go over time, you're going to change the tread. You're going to change, you know, the wear on the tire. It's going to wear out faster. You may lead to an accident, whatever else it is. So that that's another tactical thing is note those things down. Actually keep track of them. Keep mm. write them in Evernote or Bear or whatever notes, you know, some pads. So that's another tactical thing. Uh, another thing is have lots of one-on-ones, no matter who you are. One-on-one mm. -on -one conversations lead to all kinds of awareness, understanding, relationship building, confidence, trust, feedback loops, and you really can't get those in, in any sort of group or hallway or email thread or anything else. It's really about building human relationships. So those are some of the three tactical things that I would recommend to everybody is, you know, think outside of yourself, note the little sensory thing that goes wrong, keep track of it and try to take action against it. And, um, and have lots of one-on-ones if you can, really build relationships with people. Second <clears throat> tactical thing I want yep. people to walk away from is, what kind of criteria do you use to select the men in your inner circle? Um, I'm a... I'm men or women? Actually, yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think... I don't by know way, that I, I can asked, boil it down to yeah, like by the way, a, asked, asked a framework, this question, right? I asked yeah. this question because and I struggle with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually know this specifically. So I was hoping maybe you can yeah. help me distill what, what some of these criteria may be. Uh, I think what I would say is I typically look for people who um, are emotionally intelligent. Mm. People who have the capacity to... Um, to help and care and change people's lives in a way that is um, is intellectually advanced, I would say. What does that mean? Um, I I have a hard time trusting people that I don't feel are that aware of things that are happening in the universe. Mm. So if people are not curious about deeper conversations, deeper topics, talking about spirituality, talking about politics, talking about history, talking about technology with a more open-minded uh, approach and perspective to many things could be right. I tend to lean towards people who have very open-minded takes on the world as opposed to I am very hardline about subjects um, and but are also aware of things in the world. So that's what I mean by somewhat intellectually advanced. I don't mean that they're necessarily smarter than other people. I mean that they're curious and their curiosity leads them to deeper places. So they typically tend to read more. They typically tend to, uh, to discuss deep, deeper levels of topics around emotion, around uh, life and death, around spirituality, around uh, religion, around why people do what people do over the course of history as opposed to just surface level things. Uh, not that I don't I love surface level stuff too. Uh, comforts and movies and, and technology and things like that. But I, in terms of my inner circle, it's people that have the capacity to go uh, far deeper and are open-minded in the way that they typically approach topics. And I think also um, 
some of the inner circle are people who have great senses of humor. Mm. I love, uh, although I, I don't show it that much in the workplace, but I, I love people who have great senses of humor and can, can throw humor on certain situations and can turn negative things into humorous events and they don't tend to take things too seriously. Mm. I probably take things more seriously than most of the people do in, in the inner circle. Uh, mm. Although my best friend is a very serious, he's really funny, but he's also very extremely serious. And so some of it might also be having similar characteristics to me, which is maybe an ego driven friend circle. Mm -hmm. um, but those are, those are the things if it's a, it's a really hard thing to state why you choose people. I don't know that you always do. Oh, I think sometimes maybe that. people choose you too subconsciously. So, uh, it's not necessarily, now you have the capacity to move on from people certainly, but sometimes it's, it's, it's randomness that can connect. Maybe it's not that random. I don't know, but sometimes you get connected to certain people and there is some sort of a, a bond, like a magnetism that uh, aligns you. And it may be across a, a whole number of things, you know, maybe it's uh, one thing that I certainly bond with people over sports and I have certain friends that I've been fans of certain teams with for many, many years. And we always talk about that. So that's one, that's one way that it has been a bond, but it doesn't stop there. You, you dive deeper into other things as a result of the friendship, but it only started because of our interest in sports. Mm. That's how we even started talking. So, um, you know, so there may be some of that too, like a little bit of a shared interest, sports or family or, or, or travel or things that, might be interesting. So, um, yeah, I guess that's as, as much as I could describe why. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh. And then in the well, last minute, I really want to acknowledge you for just opening yourself up like this, um, you know, public forum. Yeah. I mean, sharing your life stories, sharing what's intimate about your own journey, and really share what's some of the perhaps the most recent difficult moment, you know, your father's passing and so forth, yeah. in, in, in a way that's in a way that's uh, that's so generous, I really really acknowledge you for for doing that. Um, it's 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 not an ordinary conversation, so yeah. I really appreciate you sharing yourself so generously. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was really it was actually really interesting to kind of think about it in this kind of way. So, thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Alrighty. Alrighty. Thank you so much.